This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight, our, uh, our lesson is called Story of My Life, telling character-central stories. And I'd like us to pray, and then we'll begin tonight with a story. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the richness of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us about you and about ourselves. And, uh, Father, this is just one of those areas where uh, there are so many lessons to glean that aren't even the main focus of your word, but there's so much richness there for us to learn from <coughs> still. And I pray that you would guide us tonight as we continue to look at this subject of storytelling, help us look at it from the right perspective, focused uh, on what we ought to be focused on, pleasing you and being used by you in this matter. Help us have clear minds to understand your word. Help us to be able to be practical, uh, but not to uh, lean unnecessarily on our own flesh instead of leaning on you. Guide us in that, we pray. And uh, help this class to be helpful and to point each of us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the prophet Jeremiah stands looking at a clan of nomads who are sitting and gazing expectantly back up at him. Uh, he brings out pots full of wine and cups, and he distributes it to this, this clan, this group of people who's gathered together, and he bids them, drink ye wine. Well, they all look at each other, and then one of them stands and speaks. And he, they're, they're rough and weathered people, but this man speaks articulately and courteously. But he's very clear with his words. He tells Jeremiah, we will drink no wine. And then he goes on to explain why. Now, what, what led to this situation in the first place was a command from God himself. Jeremiah uh, found himself in this situation because he was obeying God. God told him to go seek out this group of people, this, this clan, this family, uh, the Rechabites. And he was supposed to find the Rechabites, invite them to come to the temple, and then God told him to, to bring them to one of the rooms off of the courtyard of the temple and offer them wine to drink. That was God's command to Jeremiah. And so... Uh, these Rechabites were recent additions to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they were, by heritage and custom, nomads, living in tents, traveling around, living in the wilderness. And God has ordered Jeremiah to go to them with this invitation. It seems like an odd thing to do, but decades of serving God have taught Jeremiah, you don't question, you just do what God tells you to do. And so he's done it. He's prepared everything. He's invited these people in. He's generously, uh, he's, he's bought this wine. He's gotten everything ready. He's served it to them. And now they're telling him, no, we're not going to drink any of it. And here's the reason they give him. This man tells Jeremiah about one of his ancestors, a man named Jonadab. Now, Jonadab was a patriarch of sorts for this family. Uh, he was the son of Rechab, which was the the namesake of the clan. The clan was the Rechabites, named after this ancestor. Jonadab was his son, and in his day he gave his family a charge. 
Here's what he had commanded them. Jonadab told them, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Now, this seems like an odd command, an odd order to give to his family. And Jonadab doesn't really give any explanation for why it is that this family ought to refrain from wine, why they ought to only live in tents, why they ought not plant. But even though there isn't much of an explanation given, this man standing before Jeremiah tells him, this is what granddaddy Jonadab said should happen. And ever since that day, that's what's happened with this family. We've obeyed the words that he told us. It seems arbitrary, but they obeyed what Jonadab said. And so Jeremiah's offer of wine is going to uh, be refused because they're not going to back down on their <coughs> commitment now. So the Rechabites leave without drinking a drop of Jeremiah's wine, but they do leave something for Jeremiah, a lesson for him to pass on to the people of Judah. Soon after this encounter that Jeremiah has with the descendants of Jonadab, he preaches a sermon to the people of Judah, and he tells the people about the Rechabites. He tells them about this experience that he's had. He tells them about the command of Jonadab and the faithfulness of his descendants to obey that command. And then he challenges the people of Judah with a truth that no doubt feels like a punch in the gut. Now remember, Jonadab said, he, he said what the people were to do, and for generations his descendants have honored his wishes. But I have spoken unto you, Jeremiah says, for God. I have spoken unto you. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, but ye have not inclined your ear, nor hearkened unto me. God draws a stark contrast. Here is this man, this ancestor of these people, who, who said, this is how our family is going to live. And for generations they followed that whether or not they understood why. And yet God says, I have commanded you to follow my law. And again and again I have sent my prophets telling you again, obey my law, obey my law. And yet what have they done? They continue to rebel against it. In return, God promises that his judgment will fall on the people of Judah. But for their faithfulness to Jonadab's charge, God promises the family of Rechab, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. This is an interesting, uh, interesting story. It, it kind of set apart from much of Jeremiah's prophecy. And I, I love this story for a few reasons. First, it's fun to me because it's one of those stories in Scripture that's a story within a story. In fact, you could argue that it's a story within a story within a story. But more than that, I love how strikingly this story would have caused those people of Judah to see the foolishness of their disobedience to God. In contrast with how this family have carried out the wishes of their ancestor, even though it doesn't really necessarily make much sense. But I also found it appropriate for tonight because it's a great example of what we're going to be considering tonight. Character-central stories. 
why was this a, an illustration that Jeremiah would use? Why was it powerful for him to use with the people of Judah? Why would it have grabbed their attention? Well, it's because it's about people. It was about this man, Jonadab. It was about his ancestors. And as soon as Jeremiah started telling them, here's what happened to me, I can just imagine the crowd saying, what's, what's he talking about? What's going on here? And he brings these people in, and it gets their attention, and then it's a great opportunity for him to share the word of God with them. We want to tell good stories. And if we're going to tell good stories, there are basically two questions we need to answer. Uh, question number one, what makes a good story? Uh, what are the events that are good for telling as a story? We know that not everything that happens makes a good story. All right? I, it, I couldn't take any moment from my day today and make a story out of it that would be worth telling. All right? Not every moment of our lives is worth telling. Um, so what is it that makes good stories? And also, how can I do a good job telling a good story? So once I've found something that's going to make a good story, how can I tell it in a way that will do it justice? And I think we probably all had a time in our lives, I've had many, when I wanted to tell a really amazing story, something that I was truly convinced was a great story to tell and that could really make a difference, and I just completely botched telling it. Um, so what is it that allow, helps us to tell a good story in a good way? <coughs> and I think that what we're talking about tonight um, is an element in both, in the answer to both of those questions. Good stories are stories about people. And stories that are well told are stories that keep people central. So we're starting with a very basic uh, premise, and that is that stories are about people. If you're going to tell stories well, you've got to understand this. Uh, we tend to think of a story as the retelling of an event. So we say, I'm going to tell a story. What is the event that I'm going to tell about? And that's not necessarily wrong, but primarily, stories are not about events. They're about people. Think about Scripture. The stories in Scripture what are they really about? Well, it's not just about retelling something that happened. It's about the people who are at the center of those stories. That's what we really glean from. That's what really makes those stories uh, so um, impactful, is the fact that people are at the center of them. And I touched on this last week when we were talking about uh, telling historical stories. And I mentioned that the best stories to tell are most often not about the events that changed the world, but about the ones that changed someone's life. That's what makes a good story. You can tell a story about some great world-changing event, and it can be incredibly boring and nobody will care. But if you put someone's life changing at the center of that, if you center it on an individual and an experience that changed their life, then it's a story that can really impact. So an invention can't be the true centerpiece of a story, but an inventor can. An army can't be the main character in a story, but a private or a general or an onlooker in a battle can be. 
I enjoy history, but I admit that history can be incredibly boring. If it's done right, though, it's thrilling. I had a teacher in college named Matt Ulatalo, and uh, he taught history of civilization. Now, remember, I went to a small Christian college, okay? So nobody was there to major in history. But there were a lot of people who were fans of his history of civilization class. Um, even some who were professed history haters loved Matt Ulatalo's history of civilization class. And that's because he knew how to show us the human side of history. Um, he would talk about individuals, and he would put you in the shoes of people who lived through different periods of history. He had this one lecture that became legendary. It was known as the Barbed Wire Lecture. And he would give it every, in History of Civilization II, he would always give the Barbed Wire Lecture. And uh, people at Crown didn't try to sneak into classes to sit through lectures, but people would, would, would show up sometimes for the barbed wire lecture, even if they weren't taking history of civilization too. And that's partially because he, uh, he went overboard with it, but it was all about how barbed wire changed the course of history. And in that class, he talked about how barbed wire uh, stopped the cowboys, how it shaped warfare in World War I. And you might think, Whoever, who would ever want to listen to a lecture that's all about barbed wire? Well, the way he taught it put you right there. So you were wearing the boots of the cowboy looking down at the barbed wire fence that's getting in the, in the way of your cattle drive. You were wearing the muddy boots of the, the filthy World War I soldier trying to navigate your way through this barbed wire that's been put up specifically just to put you in a spot where you're going to be under machine gun fire. And he would just share it in a way that would put you right there. He knew how to bring history to life because he understood that history is about stories and stories are about people. So we need to keep this central. Whenever we're telling a story, recognize stories are about people. One way to think about that is to consider the fact that stories in one way, are always about you. Now let me explain what I mean. I don't mean that every story we tell is a personal story and that it happened to me or that I was there. But the goal of every story is to have the hearer invest in that story. For it to really be meaningful, they need to be invested in what's going on. Stories aren't just about sharing information. We talked about this the first week. They're also about meaning. A story is not a story if it's just facts. It's got to have a deeper meaning to it. It's got to be something that I want to invest in, that I care about. So a well-told story is not just going to inform the hearer's mind. It will, even if only in the smallest of ways, have an impact on their life. If a story, a story is truly going to impact someone that way, then they have to be invested in it. They have to care about what's happening. And any of us who have any experience teaching or speaking to others realize that you're not going to have your hearers invest in something if you're not invested in it. So for us to share a story that our hearers are going to take personally, it has to first become personal for us. We have to care. We have to be invested in what's going on. The best told stories draw us in. They make us care about the characters. 
They let us see how we're connected to them and the things that they experience. You think about what makes a successful movie. You might think, well, it's all about mind-blowing special effects. It's all about throwing crazy things in there like, you know, having dinosaurs or superheroes or uh, stuff happening in outer space, all this crazy stuff. The, the crazier it is, the more successful it's going to be. Well, that might make it something that a lot of people go to the theater to, to watch. But that's not what makes a story truly impactful. And that's not what makes it last. I was interested to, um, to find out um, this past year there were 2,000 Americans who were polled um, on what is the most essential Christmas movie. Um, and of course there are a lot of movies that people associate with Christmas, some that people don't feel like they can get through the Christmas season without watching. But the one that topped, that topped the list um, is over 75 years old. It's, it's a wonderful life. Now, 43% of those that were polled picked that as the most essential Christmas movie. Now, why is that? What, what is it that makes this movie so beloved? You might say, I don't know. I don't like that movie. <laughs> All right. Um, bear with me here, okay? You, you might not enjoy It's a Wonderful Life, but there's a reason this movie has lasted for so long, that it's still something that people watch. There aren't a lot of black and white movies that are still being watched regularly these days. So what is it? Uh, is it the cutting-edge special effects that, uh, that grab us in this movie? Is it something that's just over the top? It's, it's crazy. It's unimaginable. It's completely disconnected from what we would ever experience. You might say, yeah, there's an angel who shows up. But I mean, honestly, you think about the angel, and he's not much of an angel, right? It's his very unangelness that makes us love him. There's nothing like that. There's something very different about this movie that makes people love it and continue to watch it. And that is that it's so utterly human. George Bailey le leads a really normal life. He experiences a lot of the things that a lot of people experience. In particular, he experiences both disappointment and joy, but he finds his life taking a very different direction from what he had imagined. Who among us has not known that feeling? <coughs> My life is not working out in every detail the way that I thought it was going to. That's a universal human experience. There's, we, we think, here's what I thought life would be like, here's reality. Um, and that's what happens to George Bailey. The movie doesn't make us stare with, uh, at brilliant colors, it's black and white. Um, there aren't stunning vistas or mind-blowing CGI. We just find ourselves drawn into the story because we find ourselves understanding George Bailey. We know the feeling at least on some level, of our lives slipping through our fingers. We all know what it is to ask, what difference has my life made, really? Those are universal human experiences. And because we understand George Bailey, we find ourselves invested in the life of this fictional man.
that movie has lasting power because it's about you. It's not just that it's about this, this fictional guy and his family and the stuff he goes through and his opportunity to see the world uh, if he weren't in it. The reason people keep watching that movie is because they realize, that's about me. I understand this. This is something I can connect with. This is something I care about. That's what makes this story powerful. And that's one reason that we need to keep our stories character central. Um, that will help that story be something that connects to us as a teller, but also connects with those who are hearing. Because they can, if it's told well, they can begin to see themselves in the characters of that story. And they can begin to see how the things that that character learns are lessons they can learn as well. So that's one reason we need to keep our stories character central. But while we're on that, I do want to briefly touch on the power of personal stories. Um, it can be a challenge to take a story about someone else and invest in it and draw others to invest in it as well. But much of that work is saved for us when we tell personal stories, when we tell stories that actually happen to us. Because you automatically care about the things that happen in your own life. Uh, you don't have to make yourself care. Um, you were there, and it meant something to you at the time. And that investment will show as you tell the story, and it'll draw other people in as well. So there is a power in telling things that we've experienced. Uh, it's natural for us to, to make, to help our, our hearers to feel like they're there with us, to picture it with us, and to know what we were feeling and thinking. Um, it's much easier to do that with a personal story than it is with uh, one from history or even a story from scripture. So there is a power in sharing personal stories. And we see this um, in scripture. The prophets specifically made use of this power of, of sharing personal stories. Just one example from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18. Simple uh, little story that Jeremiah shares there. But he says, I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. It's a very simple story, but Jeremiah uh, shares just this experience of going down and watching this process in this potter's shop and the lesson that God taught to him. And you can see, you can, you can understand even as you read it, that this meant something to Jeremiah. And we can put ourselves there and we can see it along with him. And that story, that, that the lesson um, comes home to our hearts as we're standing there with Jeremiah in that potter's house. So there is a great deal of power in personal stories. Uh, stories are always about people. They need to stay character central. Uh, but there's another reason for that. Uh, people keep us on track. One of the easiest pitfalls in telling stories is getting off track. 
um, starting to tell the story and then getting off on a tangent. And we can start, uh, sometimes we can start moralizing. We can get up on a soapbox about something. There are always a thousand different rabbit trails we can go down. And we've all been there when somebody else was telling a story. <laughs> and we want to scream at them, get back to the story. I want to hear the story. They're off on some tangent that has nothing to do with what's going on. And we want to just grab them and pull them back in and say, keep telling me the story. I don't care about that. One of the ways that we can help ourselves not do that is by staying character central. Focusing on the person or people who are at the center of that story. That'll help keep us on track. And if we're telling that story and we're talking about something and we ask ourselves in our minds the question, what does this have to do with the person or people at the center of this story? If we have a hard time answering that question, we're probably on a rabbit trail. We need to get back over here, get back to the people who are at the center. So it's, it's one way, one thing that can help us to stay on track. And just a couple of practical tips with this. And um, just like much of what I'm sharing, there's no Bible verse that says you should tell stories in this way. Okay, understand, this is just practical advice, stuff that I've, I've been helped by. Uh, but a couple of things that, um, and I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're still on keep on track. I was trying to go to the next point already. Okay? I'm, I'm not helping myself very much on staying on track. Uh, but as, uh, you know, telling our stories, sometimes there's parts of it that we really like. We want to describe what something looked like. Uh, we want to talk about um, some, some side aspect of the story that was just really interesting or really drew us in. But often that stuff is not helpful. And it's best to edit that stuff out and stay focused on ourselves if we're at the center of the story or wh whoever the people are. Keep the action going. Keep the focus where it needs to be. Uh, one story in scripture that uh, is a great example of this is the story of Joseph. So there's quite a bit that scripture tells us about Joseph. It, it goes into great detail with its story, with his story, but you'll notice that scripture doesn't spend a lot of time describing settings. There are a lot of different tangents that the story of Joseph could have gone off on. And uh, sadly, when we tell the story of Joseph, often we go off on some of those tangents. <laughs> talking about the nature of ancient Egypt in his time, or talking about what certain customs were like, talking about um, whatever. There are a hundred different things that, that people sometimes get off on with the story of Joseph. Scripture doesn't do that. It tells us some about the settings. It tells us some about the people. But it keeps our eyes on Joseph the whole time. We're watching him walk through these experiences. And by keeping our eyes on Joseph, it keeps the action going, it keeps us engaged, and uh, it, it keeps the story moving along. It keeps us asking what's going to happen next, even if we've read the story of Joseph a bunch of times. Uh, so keeping it character central helps us stay on track. Now we'll move on to the next point. All right. Keeping our stories character central also helps us in our ability to pull people in to the story, to put them there. 
to help them feel like they're a part of what's going on. So what, we're, what we want to encourage is for people to keep their eyes on that character or characters at, at the center of the story, and if possible, even to allow them to see what's happening through the eyes of that character. Not even to feel just like they're there, but to feel like they're that person experiencing all of this for the first time. If we can put people there in the way we tell stories, then it's, they're really going to be immersed in it. They're going to be engaged, and they're going to be that much more ready to take to heart and learn the lessons that there are to learn in that story. So a couple, here, now we're going to get to these couple of practical things, okay, uh, that have helped me in this area, and that might be a help to you as well. Uh, first of all, the power of present tense. Now, this felt really awkward to me the first time I tried to do it. Telling a story about the past in present tense. Um, it felt weird to me. I'm, a, I'm kind of a, 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 I care a lot about grammar, okay? I want things to be right with my grammar and my punctuation and all of that. And so I thought, well, that's not right. You're not supposed to talk about the past in present tense. Um, but I want to encourage you to try it. The more that I do it, the more I love it. And I really think that as you tell a story, the present tense helps people feel like they're there. It helps to pull them in. So let me just give you a, a quick example um, of how I could begin a story about uh, when I was a kid and I threw a rock and hit my sister in the forehead. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Um, just I didn't actually mean to hit her, but I did. I was going for uh, William Tell, if you know that story, right over the head. Um, and uh, I did more of David and Goliath instead. All right. But let me just give you an example of how I could begin that story. And I'm going to do the exact same thing, first of all, in past tense and then in present tense. So here's past tense. I was standing on a gravel road in front of my grandma's house. I was feeling bored, looking for something entertaining to do. There were lots and lots of trees, but there wasn't much to play with out there. I looked down and realized there were also lots of rocks. All right, so that's past tense. Here's present tense. I'm standing on a gravel road in front of my grandma's house. I'm feeling bored, looking for something entertaining to do. There are lots and lots of trees, but there isn't much to play with out here. I look down and realize there are also lots of rocks. Now you might say, I don't really feel like there's much of a difference between those two. To me, the present tense puts you there in a way that the past doesn't. You feel like this is happening right now and I'm a part of it. For me as well, if I tell a story in present tense, it helps me to be more vivid with the way that I'm telling it. Um, because it helps me to feel like I'm there. And I have to see it all around me. And then I can better describe it and share it with other people. Just a little practical thing, but uh, it's been a help to me. I think it might be a help to you too. As you're trying to draw people in, try present tense, all right? Doesn't work for everybody. But it is something that can be really helpful in, um, in making that story come to life, drawing people in, making them feel like they're there. Also, I want to talk about the power of discovery. Before you start to tell a story, you know how it's going to end. All right. In, in one sense, storytellers are omniscient. Okay, not in that they know everything, 
but they do know everything about the story, okay? So when you start telling a story, I hope you know how it's going to end, all right? You've got the whole arc of the story in your mind. Your listeners don't. Take advantage of that. That's a good thing. It's, it's a real shame when people start their stories out by telling you what comes at the end. So, um, you might say, why would you ever do that? People do it all the time. So, for example, you could say, let me tell you about the time that a seatbelt saved my life. Well, that might grab people's attention. Probably not. But you have just given away the punchline. All right? Um, now, we all know that your life, you didn't die, okay? We, we know that part because you're, you're standing in front of us. But we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we, don't, we didn't know a seatbelt was going to be involved. Now we know that it has something to do with the vehicle. There was probably a wreck, and the seatbelt helped to save you. You've given away much of your story. There's still more information to share, but you just gave away the punchline. And you just took a bunch of a power out of your story. All right? The power of suspense and discovery are a great part of what makes a good story a good story. That question of what's going to happen next. Movie teasers tend to overdo it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so l lean into that. Take advantage of that. You don't want to give away all of what's going to happen before you've actually told the story. You want to put your hearers there and let them experience it as it happens. Let them experience it as if they were there. So this happens. The people who were there at that point didn't know what was going to happen next. That's how you want the people listening to feel as well. It's going to be a surprise. I don't know exactly what's coming. It might be unavoidable to give away, to, to give away some things in your story before the end, but take advantage of the opportunity to, to harness the power of discovery. Don't tell them everything at the beginning. Let them discover it. Let them experience it as you tell the story. And that's a big part of what helps to pull people in as well. Again, this is all about characters. So you want to put them there with the people who are experiencing this. Help them feel like they're experiencing it along with them. That they're there as these events are happening. And the people who are there were wondering, what's going to happen next? And you want that question in the, in the minds of your hearers as well. Even when someone is familiar with a story, it's amazing how this idea can still have power. And uh, I think we, we understand that even with some stories in Scripture that we know so well. And yet the way that Scripture shares some of those stories, we still find ourselves with the people in the story. We know what's going to happen next, but we still feel that thrill of discovery because we're right there with them. And they're wondering what's going to happen next. I think of the story of the resurrection. And the way that scripture tells that story, you can be there alongside those women wondering what's going to happen. What has happened to the body of Jesus? You can be there right alongside Peter and John as they run to the tomb and they look inside. And then um, Peter is the one who steps inside. And it talks about that moment where John... He sees and he believes. 
and you can enter into that and you can feel that the power of discovery, even though you know what's happened and you know what's going to happen, but you still, you, you still enter into that because of the way the story is told. So keep me focused on the character and by doing that, pull me into the story. Um, another thing that has to do with characters uh, that we should, we should avoid and something that we ought to, um, we can think about it one way and we ought to think about it a different way. Uh, embrace the messiness. You know, sometimes stories are very clean. Things happen just the way they should. Um, you know, it's just this, this clean, good guys win, bad guys lose, everybody's happily ever after. Um, and that's, you might say, I like stories like that, okay? But life isn't like that. Uh, heroes aren't perfect. Life is messy. The good guys don't always win. The schemes of the wicked people aren't always thwarted at the last second. It can be tempting when we tell stories to cut out all of the, those inconvenient facts. We want to clean up our heroes. We want to gloss over their failures. We only want to talk about the evil schemes that do come crashing down. But you know what's amazing to me is that Scripture doesn't do that. There's a lot of messiness in Scripture. We have patriarchs who lie and cheat and fail in their faith. We have the greatest king in all of Israel's history committing adultery and having a man killed in battle. We have apostles doubting and even denying their teacher and savior. We have leaders in the early church disagreeing with each other and calling out sin in each other's lives. The Bible is full of flawed heroes, and it even has its share of complete failures. Why is that? Well, for one, it's because the Bible's true, and that's the reality of life. Humans are human. But there are some reasons why we ought to consider joining Scripture and embracing messiness, because flaws are actually an important part of compelling and challenging stories. For one thing, flaws are exciting. Heroes who never mess up uh, tend to be obnoxious and boring. They might be the kind of heroes you'd find in kids' books, but most of the time, by the time we reach adulthood, that kind of hero just kind of feels empty. When I was younger, I read some of the Hardy Boys books. I don't remember how many of them I read. I think it was three or four. But it only took that many, honestly, fewer than that, for me to have the whole thing figured out. Um, they all follow the same basic plot line. Okay? There are some terrible bad guys. The boys stumble upon their nefarious, theme, uh, nefarious scheme. One of the guys, at least one of the, one of the brothers, gets kidnapped. Uh, the other, and either their dad or one of their friends, has to go save the one who was kidnapped. And in the process of saving the one who got kidnapped, they stop the nefarious scheme just before it can be carried out. All right, that's the basic plot line, best I can tell, of every Hardy Boys book ever written. Now, if you like the Hardy Boys, I'm sorry. Um, I don't mean to offend you. But every time, just in the nick of time, they save the day. The good guys live happily ever after. The bad guys go to jail. Hooray for the Hardy Boys. Honestly, 
even when I was a kid, I thought they were boring. <laughs> because Joe and Frank are so sickeningly perfect, and everything always works out so impossibly well in the end. The fact is, um, flaws are exciting. Flaws are more exciting than perfection. Some of the best stories are the ones where the main character kind of makes a fool out of themselves. Now think about this. Would you rather that I told you a story about a recital where I performed a piano piece to perfection? Or a recital where I got off track, I got flustered, and I made a complete mess of the piece in front of an auditorium full of spectators? Which story would you rather hear? Don't, don't, don't feel bad about it. Okay, We would all rather hear the story about the failure. Because flaws are more exciting than perfection. All right, We don't like hearing stories about people doing things just the way they're meant to be done. Flaws are exciting. But even more significant than that, stories that embrace that messiness are effective because flaws are relatable. Most of you in this room probably don't know what it's like to be perfect. In fact, my wife is probably the only one. Most of you don't probably often feel like a hero. When someone tells a story about some astounding success, it probably annoys you. But there's something about stories that make the teller look bad, or at least vulnerable, that draws us in because we can relate. And again, scripture is full of these stories. One example is in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon tells this story um, about this dream that God gave him about what was going to happen to him. Because of his foolish pride and unwillingness to submit to God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets the interpretation of the dream, but he just ignores it. He continues on in his prideful ways. Daniel 4.30 he says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? He's looking out over his kingdom and saying, look at what I've done. This is all because of me. I've built the greatest kingdom on earth and I've done it with my own two hands. Well, it, the Bible says, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. It's a grotesque picture. But we see what happens. Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up in pride saying, I've done all of this. And God says, I'll show you who's really in charge. You are going to lose your kingdom and you're even going to lose your humanity for a time. You're going to be like an animal out in the field. And that's what happens to him. Finally, at the end of that time, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, My reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. And then he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. So Nebuchadnezzar tells this story about himself. And I love this story because it's so relatable. You might say, what are you talking about? Um, I hope none of us have known what it's like to be living outside like an animal. But how many of us know what it's like to lift ourselves up in foolish pride and say, look at what I've done. We look at Nebuchadnezzar telling this story about himself, and we see him sharing his flaws, and we realize, yeah, I've done that too. I've taken credit for things, thinking it's all because of me, when in reality, I know. Anything I have, anything I do is only because of God. This is a powerful story because we see Nebuchadnezzar's flaws shown before us and we realize yeah that's relatable I know what that's like I struggle in that same way we all understand that life is messy no one's life presents as a perfect narrative ready to be told to the masses heroes have warts things don't happen as quickly as we like tension doesn't always find a satisfactory resolution so don't skip over the inconvenient truths. That's part of what makes a character central story so compelling. It's those flaws. I want to spend just a minute talking about how to bring characters to life. So you're telling a story and you want to introduce me to a character. How do you do that? Well, many of us start with physical uh, descriptors. So we might talk about their age, their height, their build, their hair and eye color, their clothing. But think about the stories in the Bible. How often in Scripture are we told those things about the people in Scripture? How tall were the apostles? What color hair did they have? Well, you say, well, they probably had black hair because everybody did. All right. But how often do we get physical descriptions of Bible characters. Well, every once in a while it'll tell us that someone was particularly good looking. You know, you've got Samson is especially handsome, or not, I don't remember if it says that about Samson, but it does about Absalom. Uh, there are certain women that it says were especially beautiful. Uh, you might get every once in a while you've got somebody short like Zacchaeus. Uh, you've got Zacharias who's old. You've got John the Baptist who wears camel's hair. But most characters get little or no physical description. We get to know them by their words and their actions. We get to know them by who they are, not just what they look like. After all, our physical appearance is the most shallow expression of what makes you and me who we really are. So as you think about how to make characters come to life, don't just give me the things that I would be able to tell about someone if I passed them on the street. Tell me who they really are. 
use their words and their actions to help me see what makes that person tick. One writer who does this really well, in my, in my opinion, is Charles Dickens. Um, so take, for example, this vignette of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. He says, oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone was Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. External heat and cold had little influence on him. No warmth could warm, no cold could chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all their, his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, Dark Master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. And you might say, I don't like Charles Dickens. I love Charles Dickens, all right. But n did you I notice like, with, that, like with that description, <coughs> what did it say about what Scrooge looked like? We got nothing. We don't know if he's tall or short. We don't know what his age is. We don't know if he has any facial hair. We don't know what he wears. We know nothing about what he looks like, but you feel like you've met Scrooge. You feel like you know Scrooge. And all of those, those incidental facts about his appearance fill themselves in in our minds as we get to know who he really is. So if you want to make characters come to life in your stories, share through their words and actions who they are, not just what they look like. A biblical example would be Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We don't get a single physical descriptor of Job. But you learn from those verses that he is perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. We learn that he has a big family, that he's rich, and that he's conscientious. We get to know Job, even though we don't know a thing about what he looks like. So bring your characters to life. Introduce us so that we can know them and walk with them through the story. This is a good place to remind you about editing. We talked about this last week. Editing. You need to cut certain things out. We don't need to know everything. Tell people what they need to know to make the story come to life. I don't need everything that you could possibly tell me about this character, but I do need enough that I feel like I can know them and walk with them through the story. So always keep your stories character central. I gave you a few tips down at the bottom for using personal stories. And I want to quickly tell you a personal story of my own that illustrates, I think, these three points, that takes these three things to heart. So you want to tell, you, you want to, in your own life, if you're thinking about using personal stories, sharing those uh, for the purpose of pointing people to truth, pointing people to God, 
um, think about a moment of, of transformation or learning in your life. A moment where you, you truly learned something or where your perspective was changed. Um, avoid looking like the hero uh, because most of the time that'll just come off as boasting. All right? uh, don't, don't make it look like you were the one who stepped in and saved the day. All right? Even if you were, there are ways that you can help to point the, the attention off of yourself and your own accomplishments. But nobody wants to hear a story where you're the hero who steps in and, and, and everybody applauds you at the end. Um, and then look for, I'm sorry. There we go. Uh, find things in the story that are relatable or universal. So you don't want this to be about something that happened to you that has no bearing on the lives of other people. Think about things that you've experienced, lessons that you've learned that others could learn as well. Think about things that have happened to you that other people are going to understand that. Um, the kind of everyday things that happen to us all. So the story that I want to share with you um, happened back when my son Aaron was two. And when he was two years old, one constant source of wonder for him was flashing lights. It didn't matter to him if it was a fire truck, a police car, uh, an ambulance, a tow truck. He loved flashing lights. And any time he saw a vehicle with flashing lights, everything else stopped while he would watch those flashing lights. <coughs> well, one evening we were having dinner at Chipotle. And uh, we were excited to enjoy our dinner together there. But that night, life was especially good for Aaron because right outside the front of the restaurant, uh, there was a police cruiser that was parked there with its lights flashing. I don't know what was going on. I don't know why they hung around for as long as they did. But they sat out there in front of the restaurant for quite a while. And so we got our food. We came and sat where we could look out those front windows. And Aaron just sat there and he just stared at those flashing lights the whole time. He ate less than he normally would have at dinner because he was so transfixed by those flashing lights. Well, we stayed a little bit longer than we normally would have because we wanted him to be able to continue to enjoy those lights. But we had some errands to run. So eventually we realized, okay, we're going to have to go. Um, we're not going to be able to hang around here until the police cruiser leaves because we don't know how long that's going to be. And so we, we went, outside, went out of the restaurant. And originally, I think that Aaron thought we were going out so we could get closer and go look at those lights even closer. Well, then we turned and went to go back to our car. And when he realized what was happening, he started crying. And we buckled him into his seat, and he's just weeping. And we pulled out of the parking lot and headed on to our errands, and he's sobbing in the back seat. And uh, I think all of us know that you, you can usually tell with a kid if they're crying because they're having a bad attitude or if they're crying because they have a broken heart. Well, that night Aaron had a broken heart. Uh, he wasn't just having a bad attitude. His heart was broken because those flashing lights to him were just the biggest thing in the world at that point. He was so transfixed by them, he couldn't imagine why in the world we would possibly leave them behind us to go on and do something else. How could there possibly be a priority in life that was greater than staying there to look at those flashing lights? 
And uh, as we as we pulled away, and he's crying in the back seat, um, I found my my eyes welling up with tears too. Um, partially because you hate to see your your kid so sad about something, but also because it made me think of myself. You know, I thought about Aaron's perspective on that, and part of me wanted to laugh. How can you be so silly to think that something like that is so important? But then it made me think, how often does God think that about me? I get so broken up about those worldly things that are taken away from me for one reason or another. And my, it's like my life is falling apart. And God's looking at me and saying, how could your perspective be so small? I'm taking away the flashing lights, but there's things that are so much bigger than that. But I get, I get so wrapped up in things, and, and God gives and he takes away, and I don't understand why. And often I find myself like Aaron, sobbing in the back seat. And God just wishes that I would better understand eternal perspective. You know, my perspective is so much greater than Aaron's. But the gap between my perspective and God's is so much greater than that. We're told in Scripture to value the things that are eternal, to lay up treasure in heaven, to value the things that last forever. How good are we at doing that? And so that evening as we were pulling away, God just challenged me to realize he sees it all much more clearly than we do. He realizes that things of earth are far less valuable than we like to think they are. And I need to trust him that his perspective really is uh, that much greater than mine. Um, I, I love to share that story because it really was a learning experience for me. God worked in my heart. But it's not about something crazy that happened. It's not about something that's just out of this world that you can't imagine. It's a really down-to-earth, relatable moment. Um, but God used it to drive a profound truth home to my heart. And that's, as you think about sharing personal stories, think about those little moments when God works in your heart about something, when he helps you learn a truth, when he reminds you about something, and how he uses just those small things. And often those can be some of the greatest and most impactful stories we can share with others. Um, because they can relate, and they can learn those lessons right along with us as God worked in that way in our lives. So, stories are about people. One of the great ways we can embrace that is by telling our own stories. But no matter what stories you tell, always keep them character central. It'll help us in a lot of ways. But one of the greatest things is, if you keep it character central, that's going to be one of the keys in people really being able to learn <coughs> lessons from that story and be able to see um, what, what they can learn about the Lord and about his word. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. 
May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.